Today is December 7th, 1988, and it's Sister Prince, and I'm back with Devon Callaway. It's Pearl Harbor. And Devon's looking through a collection of uh, Citizen Crusader, the, the newspaper that she and her husband started. The uh, paper that we really did was the, the new Citizen. Citizen's mm -hmm. Crusader was the name that evolved after we broke from the original paper, mm -hmm. um, which was called the Crusader. And so at a certain point, we just broke off and, and called the paper the new Citizen. And th this was... This was before. Um, this was in the beginning, and this was in the beginning. Oh, here's when, Henry Winfield Wheeler. Right. Uh, you know, I mentioned him. Yes. And uh, when I, I got around to women, I didn't get to uh, mention the fact that his daughter, Ruth Maddie Wheeler, was also a figure in the civil rights struggle, and she was a dominant person who um, insisted that her father be the foremost figure, so that whenever he made any utterances, Ruth was right there uh, following him, and sometimes she was his only picket mm -hmm. when he would opt to take on a uh, an issue that he felt ought to be publicized. I think that we talked um, off the uh, tape afterwards the other day, and because I said to you, what, what was it like to be a, was it difficult to be elected uh, as a black and a woman? And you said no, but filling. Well, Henry. trying to fill the. Uh, the image uh, of a civil rights candidate was not too difficult for me because I was already, you were already there. active in that kind of uh, projection. Uh, other women who, whose names stood out at that point in time as being active were um, Bernice Bush was the mother of Margaret Bush Wilson, and she had been one of the early uh, founders and members of the St. Louis branch NAACP. It's important that everyone remember and recall that during the 50s, the NAACP was the dominant civil rights fighters. Of the, it was the fighting uh, organization and instrument, and its philosophy was that changes could be affected by changing the law. And so most of the NAACP action was the filing of suits in various areas where the discrimination was de jure by law. 
And so the active people in the civil rights struggle mainly came from the middle class people who understood the law, understood the impact of the law, and who were willing to put effort and money behind the fight to change the law. So therefore you had women on the local scene like Mrs. Bush. Others would have included Kitty Hall, who was quite active in the NAACP, Maggie White, Maggie Sawyer, and of course Ruth Maddie Wheeler. And they were the vocal members of the NAACP who were not afraid to speak out publicly. This is the 50s? Yeah, this would be the 50s. We need to move to the and 60s. The major, major thing that came from the 50s that carried through to the 60s was the struggle to acquire a better representation in the voting process. And one of the earliest things that demonstrates that kind of approach was an effort in the 57 period, 1957, for a, a new charter to be um, drafted by the city of St. Louis, eliminating the present structure of the 28 aldermen and placing governance of the city in a, a less uh, numerical number of people elected for the Board of Aldermen. The proposal for the new charter had a formula called 771, seven people to be elected by ward districts, seven people to be elected citywide, and one person to be elected as the president of the board. Um, Which I understand is unusual in St. Louis to have an elected president? No, we, we, we elect our, our president of the board of all now. Yes, but I, I don't I don't know that that's true of other cities, is that? Oh, that may be. I, I am not okay. the recollection to, to really uh, distinguish whether we are singular. We are singular in that we are not a part of a county. But anyway, I'm trying to lead up to the 60s that insistence uh, to become more a part of government was be beginning to surface among the black community. And so therefore, when the proposal to reduce representation by reducing 28 wards to seven, this became a real battlefield in terms of, of the value in terms of political participation to the black community. The uh, NAACP took the, the dominant role of resisting this. 
it was defeated, although it was supported by a large number of black people. It, it split the black community right down the middle of the fight for a new charter. Uh, we had had a, a uh, board of freeholders, and we had black representation on that board of freeholders. And I think uh, Mr. Broussard, who was a distinguished uh, school teacher, he was on there, and he of the board of freeholders resisted the 771 plan. So that the black community mobilized and really got the vote out and the charter was defeated. Now, uh, this movement for greater inclusion into the, the political representation then began to move toward the one man, one vote concept, which moved toward state level and federal level. Uh, this all stemming through research that lawyers with the NAACP had uh, done in regard to where leverage might be found and applied to make changes. We had a local black lawyer by the name of David Grant who was quite active in that particular concept. And of course, Margaret Bush Wilson was active in, in pursuing that. It was carried into court and the concept prevailed that there was deliberate uh, disenfranchisement in the state of Missouri. So the one man, one vote was uh, a violation, I mean, it was a, an effort to end the violation of, of disproportionate, a, a disproportioned representation for black voters. With a state with 114 counties, each of our counties had a representative so that out of the 163 members of the Missouri House of Representatives, 114 of those came from single counties, some of which had as few as 2,000 citizens population. They would have the same weight and the same vote as those of us who came from the cities who were allocated by our laws a specific number of representatives which had to be prorated by our population. So when I was elected in 62, I had a, a um, constituency of 55 thousand people, but there were any number of other members of the legislature who had, as I said, the least I can recall was like 2,400 and they went all up the scale. 
Some of them had 14,000 uh, citizens, some of them had 20,000, but that was a disproportionate weight for my vote and therefore for my constituents. And so that was the one man, one fight, that fight won. And that occasioned a redistricting of the legislative districts all over the state so that some counties had to go together, some had to be cut in two. Uh, whatever the norm of the state population was had to be broken into equally populated districts. And consequently, the St. Louis area, the Kansas City area, the St. Louis County area, all gained uh, representatives that they didn't, uh, districts that they did not have. And so that began to cause a shift in the quality of the representatives who came into the legislature. After the one man, one vote, which was, um, I think, 1965, uh, it, it began, the fight began. Then we began the struggle for a district from which a black congressman could be elected. And that was a very, very, uh, uh, well, it was a long, drawn-out struggle. But it all happened in the Missouri legislature. Now, that was the, the kind of civil rights fighting that I, as a state representative, was involved in. It was during the 60s, of course, that the, the acting out confrontational uh, fighting developed. But prior to that, uh, this quiet, uh, dramatic struggle was going on to secure better representation by the law in terms of one man, one vote. Uh, consequently, our fight was victorious in the Missouri legislature, and we were able to carve a district within the St. Louis area, a congressional district which included most of the black population of the city of St. Louis. It had been split in before this battle was won. It had been split, the black community. One half of it was in the third congressional, and the other half was the Democratic weight in, in the first congressional so district. Then, in other words, if, if you drew a district that was predominantly black, it was per se a Democratic di uh, district because the weight of the Democratic vote usually uh, was closely proportionate to the number of blacks in the district. So now your voting block could really have some power. Yeah, the voting block has the weight of getting us a black man into the national picture. So I was quite active in that struggle, and uh, we had many meetings in, in the uh, St. Louis area to 
um, make the awareness of the community um, stronger to build the support that we needed at the legislative level, the insistence coming from this particular area. You must have given a lot of speeches. A lot of, well, at that time, my husband was the active person speaking. Uh, I was the kind of behind-the-scenes person working with the details. We had meetings. I would have to keep the records um, and uh, help devise the uh, material that was passed out. And, of course, there were meetings on uh, a smaller level, but the battle went on in the halls of the Jeff City building. Ms. Callaway, who, uh, you said that this, uh, the, the blacks in St. Louis were, were split. Uh, on the charter? On the well, at that time... What I, what I wanted to ask was who, uh, who was on, if you could give me some names, like you mentioned Broussard was... Oh, well, he was on the side of, of the uh, opposition to the freehold. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was one of the members of the freeholders who, who held out when they were um, voting on the plan they would put before the public. But in the NAACP, which I have mentioned, was the dominant, was the dominant civil rights okay. fighting group, and the, people the NAACP leadership split down the middle on that issue. The uh, uh, major vocal uh, exponent of the 771 plan was Howard Woods, who was editor of the then St. Louis Argus newspaper. Please explain why, why, uh, who would be, why they would be against it. Why would they? Because the the um, the selling factors of reducing the number of aldermen had some positive um, rationale. Uh, it would be less costly to the city. It would, uh, according to those who were pushing it, it would uh, make govern city government more efficient. And that was the, the major thing, was to, to have a more efficient government, uh, a less costly government. And uh, one of the major things was, quietly, the quality of the, of the makeup of that new board. Now, it stands to reason that a person who would be financially able to take on 128th uh, population of the city and campaign and pay the campaign costs. But when this person had to face the fact that he now has to uh, campaign in a district four times larger than the existing district, then it begins to put the political uh, uh, opportunity of offering yourself for a public office 
it began to remove it from uh, a lot of, of people's grasp. And the people who, who uh, bought the idea of it were more or less of the elitist point of view. They would want a quality person and the only kind of person who will probably be able to do a citywide campaign would be a quality person with all the educational credentials and financial backing that would permit him to wage a citywide. So you would have, uh, hopefully, out of that 771, that you would have at least one black out of the seven if the combined uh, lesser units would put their power together that they should have by trade-off with other candidates for the citywide post that you would be able to come out with at least one at that point in time. Now, if that were being proposed now, I would think that the proponents would say we would have at least two or three of the seven might be black. Same way we have now in the uh, uh, school board where we have uh, people are running, all running citywide. By trade-off with uh, certain elements in the community, we wind up with some blacks on the school board. But that is not, in my opinion, uh, the, uh, the healthiest way. You were asking, why would blacks support the 771 plan? they would support it because, number one, it was being sold by um, elements in governance that had their ears. And they had committed themselves to it before it dawned on them that uh, this is not going to sell with the total population. It was at that point in time that they figured that a few people who would articulate support for it, black people, this would uh, convince black people that they ought to go and vote for this 771 plan at the polls. But when the NAACP got involved on the basis of these issues that I, I have pointed out, uh, of a wider representation and the potential for a, a larger uh, a participation, then uh, people began what you might call wake up. Mm -hmm. Therefore, these other people had stuck themselves out. One of them was Joseph W.B. Clark, who had been a dominant vocal voice in the struggle in St. Louis. One of them was Mrs. Valor Abington, who was a a strong fighter who had initiated, uh, I believe, the, the first case in the state of Kentucky challenging uh, discrimination uh, of the uh, school teacher status in terms of disparate and unequal salaries. And she had won her case, but she came to St. Louis. She supported the uh, 771 plan and there were other people in the black community who lent themselves 
to the uh, support of the 771 plan. In, in resisting it, they became uh, the targets of a lot of vilification from the people who were opposing and some rather uh, mean uh, tactics were used labeling these people Uncle Toms and Aunt, uh, what they call them, Aunt Jemimers or whatever the symbol was. And this is what caused the bitterness. The very uh, negative type of campaign that some of the proponents, I mean the, the opponents, put into the public's uh, um, hands. So uh, that took a long, long while, and for some people, the rift caused uh, never permitted them to, to go back to the old camaraderie that they had enjoyed with the, uh, with the people who broke off and went in the other direction. It's a story all in itself. Yes, it is. And it's um, what has struck me when talking to different people is that, um, what, you okay? Yeah, I have a book I wanted to oh, show go you. Oh, ahead. Well, I, here, we'll talk. Um, is that um, it seems as though the struggle is the most important thing and that I, I, the rifts may happen, but they do close or people do seem to get along to move ahead and everybody seems to have a different place. Yours was so vital in what you did. And then you have other people, but turn it off. Uh, remembering that that was one of my major things, yeah. the fight for a, uh, a congressional district in uh, Jefferson City. And this is 77. The fight for a congressional district, as I told you, was uh, carried on in the, in the legislature because that is the duty of the Missouri legislature to to redraw the lines ever after every 10 uh, years and on the basis of the census figures. And uh, after we won the court battle that indicated that the Constitution of the, United, of the, of the state was in violation by using the plan that we had then we had to fight the struggle with the order that new districts be drawn. So that was where the big battle, even for the picture that the post had. Excuse me, I'm, I'm, this is sort of interesting. Yeah, a telegram at four o'clock on Tuesday, July 9th, I'm meeting with a group of leaders of women's organizations throughout the country to discuss those aspects of the nation's civil rights problem in which women and women's organizations can play a special role. This matter merits serious and immediate attention. I would be pleased to have you attend the meeting to be held in the East Room of the White House. Please advise whether you will be able to attend. John F. Kennedy, that is to the Honorable DeBurn Calloway. Yes, I did attend that meeting. And of course there was those gobs of women. They were from all over the country, essentially. What uh, what the president was trying to do was to lay the uh, 
groundwork for the role that he planned to play in the uh, changing of the law in regard to uh, the civil rights. And he was doing himself a grassroots job of projecting uh, what, his, what his thoughts were and his plan. I also was involved in the in the uh, fight for uh, that's the women there. Fight for what? Go ahead. Fight for the change of, of our abortion law because our abortion law was one that restricted abortion and would uh, place a doctor in jail was a felony. And I was trying to eliminate that and also give a a boost to uh, women's right to choose by trying to fight the law. So this was a big battle. And it went on a terrible battle in state. We never won that battle in this state. You were the first woman to chair the education uh, committee. Yeah. And from, uh, uh, I spoke to Sue Shear, who said that that was most important committee uh, beside the budget, budget committee and you were the first woman. Yeah, and I, was, I was. She also said that you were colorblind and that you, <laughs> well, you did not uh, um, vote for things if you did not believe in them just because it had to do with black issues. Well, you see, the problem that you have in trying to distinguish between uh, the fight for black and, and oh, there is one of those protests. That was one you had been asking about pictures. I, mm -hmm. I, the only thing I could do is take that one out of there and, and copy it. Okay. But anyway, I'm trying to explain uh, in terms of of, of the struggle for black equality, I have always made a distinction in regard to what is discrimination and where it stops and starts. It to me is discriminating if you are in a district where you have five, uh, five times as many persons uh, you are representing as m the five times more than the other people. That is a plain, uh, a visible and a telling and a damaging uh, situation regarding the weight of your vote. But when you are proposing laws that would give funds to uh, the public schools, then you have to take the view that every child, at least in my opinion, every child is equal to the benefits of every other child. So that in that instance, I would be colorblind. There would be some proposals in Jeff City which were designed mainly 
to benefit the blacks. And that is the point I suppose that Susie was referring to when she said I was colorblind. I opposed them. I got into a terrific battle with the uh, some of the black male members because they were trying to get a law passed. Okay. And, and of course, I opposed that kind of legislation because to me, to enact a law that was designed for the purpose of giving the edge to black members of the fire department was, as I would see it, would be a reverse kind of a discrimination. And therefore, if I didn't go along with the blacks, then some people could say I was colorblind. But you were for human rights. I was for human rights, mainly for human rights. Yeah. Uh, I have, I, I don't know how long you want to give me. I have certain questions that I Okay, need, you I need to ask you, but, with yours but, because, but yeah, I'm no, 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 you're not rambling. I would, I would like to do this um, because what I want to get in is what you did with the education committee. I mean, in other words, if I wanted to come back, <laughs> would you do that? Well, you're or would gonna you? have to come back on the education committee because I tell you the education committee was one of the most busy right. uh, uh, committees in terms of pieces of legislation. So there may have been a few things there that uh, um, I have to refresh my mind on in terms well, of that. So we'll, we'll the Education Committee is one that, that really has, you know, a, a, a volume, uh -huh. a volume of okay. legislation that it, it has to deal with. Well, then, uh, and we have some very uh, uh, controversial issues that come before that committee, so I would have to really right. get back to well, my records on just, that one. Then just to finish up, and then we'll, we'll move on to the other questions. So the woman's role in civil rights was, uh, I don't want to. I would call the woman's role in civil rights was uh, a, uh, a dynamic role and uh, certainly um, a vital part of it. And, and I would, if I were to weight uh, the, the value of the male participation and the, and the female, I would weight it in favor of the female because the uh, women were the, the grassroots um, consistent followers of the dream. The male was a figure person. In other words, uh, you would elect a, a president of your group, which was the NAACP, and most of the time it'd be a black person, male, black male. Uh, his participation was one of imagery. And I am not saying that the black male was not concerned, but the women were the ones who attended the meetings for the most part. They were the larger part of the base organization. And 
when it came to the fundraising, you had to rely mainly on the women uh, to move along those uh, uh, assignments of telephoning and and uh, contacting people, building the membership. So I would say that I would weight the struggle for civil rights heavily uh, in favor of women in regard of the total continuous effort that women projected. You would have some grassroots male figures who would function at that level, but for the most part, your male figures were people who achieved leadership by their qualifications. Most times they were lawyers or uh, persons who had distinguished themselves somehow in the community. But as I said, the ongoing fight from the days of Reconstruction has been basically a woman's fight. We, I'm sorry. What I was going to point out, but they stopped short of fighting for the female uh, assertion of female. Feminists. Yeah, female issues, uh, what we call uh, this, the women's, women's rights. group. For the most part, black women rejected that because they had been fighting for the liberation of a total mm -hmm. and then to be uh, separated and say, now we're going to fight for women's rights. They say, that's what we've been fighting for all the time mm -hmm. because fighting for total yes. civil rights they among blacks was including the women. Yeah, they expected that to be part of right, it. Right, so that uh, the women's lib movement never really uh, attracted, uh, gathered too much momentum in the black female world. And on, on the contrary, the black male immediately, immediately saw red when the women live issues began to dominate uh, the ba uh, battlefront. Well, how do you, do you perceive then that the leaders of the civil rights were men, thought of as the perceived leaders? Well, for one thing, the, um, the males were pushed by the female. They were projected forward. So the constant struggle in, in the black family and community structure has been uh, for the white society to attack the black male. And I don't know if you ever, did you see the picture of the life of Mrs. Jane, Miss Jane Pittman? Mm -hmm. Then you saw scenes in there where the younger blacks, as they became aggressive after the days of slavery, little by little they were killed off. And so there was a, a very deep-rooted consciousness within the black female community that we got to stand behind our males. And so consequently, the males grew up with that uh, awareness. You take the churches there, dominantly women congregation, female con congregation pushing the black minister. But as I said, it doesn't mean that 
that uh, there are no uh, black male uh, church members. Boy, it means that the black female uh, church members just automatically inherit the role of keeping things going. The nurturers and the caretakers. Right. And so if you want to understand how the black male always surfaced, it is because in a way he was trained to be that, that forerunner, that front person. Mm -hmm. You go ahead. You go. You, you do it. You do I'll it. stay. Right. Even, even yourself as... Yeah, because I never, said, I never thought of myself as a, a public figure, but I was constantly out there supporting black and white male candidates whom I felt were, uh, as we call, uh, right on certain issues. In other words, if, if the candidate were promising to uh, make certain changes and and had a background where he or she had participated in in the uh, civil rights struggle, then I felt this person was worthy of support and election. And so I would just jump in and start volunteering. Man, I was I one of Adlai, Adlai Stevenson's uh, army of uh, volunteers and uh, other, other persons that I I don't even know now what their names are, but if the candidate articulated and demonstrated that he was concerned about problems, the same kind of problems I was concerned about, then I would jump in and, and uh, help out, and the helping would mostly be with the campaign. I want to talk about leadership with you. Um, uh, we've talked about the male and being in the leadership uh, role um, and how he got there, but uh, did the leadership come from the uh, grassroots uh, or established leadership positions, and why were they perceived as leaders? Well, leadership in my mind is related to a certain amount of aggression, of personal aggression. Uh, you could call a meeting of ten people interested in a particular subject and when you get the subject on the table there are going to be those present at that meeting who will vocalize their response. There will be others who will sit and listen. Uh, the leader is the person who is aggressive in articulating whatever the particular uh, issue may be. And that uh, is to me a sort of an innate uh, characteristic that you cannot uh, just designate someone. Now if you're in a group that, that functions together regularly, eventually people sense or uh, realize that one of them has a little bit more to offer than other and that one will surface in time as the leader. But it is mainly 
the person who articulates that becomes or the person who achieves in terms of if there is a goal set by the group and there is one who works harder and it is visibly uh, possible to determine well he is selling more uh, uh, fruitcakes if that's the project for a club uh, he's really a go-getter and so when something else comes up so we'll pick get him because he has demonstrated that he has to get up and go but as far as the black community or even the white community in the 60s were concerned for instance you had leaders of the NAACP you had leaders in core uh, were they really leaders in the black uh, community or were they perceived as leaders well there would have been a, I think a mixture of perceived leaders and uh, some that were actually leaders that had demonstrated, just as I have uh, remarked a few minutes ago, that they had done things, that they had proven that they had the interest, proven that they had the ability mm -hmm. to achieve. You made a, you made a list uh, of the most influential Negroes in St. Louis uh, in 1961, um, would you say those were also the leaders? Would you use influential and leaders in the same? Uh, these persons were... Has that list come back to haunt you? <laughs> no, no, I didn't choose this list. This list was chosen by um, a voting Oh, a ballot okay. that oh. we put in our paper. Okay. So I will call all of these people bona fide because these people were voted for on a little piece of uh, balloting uh, form mm -hmm. that we put in the paper. So I did not personally single them out, but I, I recognized them and I would say immediately that all of these were bona fide leaders. They were not uh, image makers and selected by someone else and I could run through and tell you what each one had done that I would consider cause him to be named on there uh, because as I said this, this man was a, a front runner in the civil rights and he was also a political person and he had a, a name for holding firm to his position of not being corrupt in terms of supporting issues. He supported them because of their, their uh, significance to the black community rather than because somebody came along and dumped a bunch of money in his pocket. You're talking uh, about Fred Weathers. Fred Weathers. Okay. Uh -huh. And right. then, of course, same thing was true of Chambers, except that Jordan was more of a um, up from the grassroots uh, constituency than Weathers. Weathers was an educated man. Jordan was a self-educated man and a businessman, but they were both successful. Branham was a, an urban league leader. David Grant was a distinguished lawyer, so was Theodore McMillian. And McNeil was well known within the Pullman uh, Porter Service for having helped to organize that group and Dr. Young was well known in the community for not only his 
medical uh, services but for his identity with certain causes and his contributions of money to the things that black community tried to do. And that's Margaret Bush Wilson and Reverend James Cook and of course William Clay. So as I said, all of these yes. people had demonstrated that their concern was valid. I mean, mm -hmm. that you did not uh, take a James Hurd and and say, well, he's just doing that for so for such and such a reason, so he can get his name in the paper. Mm -hmm. When he when he participated in something, he realized that Hurt was sincere about it. And so it's, that's how these names were chosen. Uh, except for one lady on there, and I'm not gonna call her name. <laughs> she, she mobilized the return of the ballot and she put it in with herself within the... <laughs> within the <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll pass. Um, all right, what, what, what events besides Jeff Bank would you say in St. Louis in the 60s constituted the Civil Rights Movement? Sorry. Oh my goodness, we had all, all kinds of things. I have just mentioned to you fight for the uh, Congressional District, mm -hmm. which I would consider if you had to weigh those, uh, fight for the, and, and the victory in getting Congressional District uh, would outweigh the, the Jefferson Bank uh, situation because I believe that um, although the, the Jefferson Bank had a ripple effect in the matter of opening up jobs and getting blacks employed by banks, I believe that it could have been and would have been achieved some other way if it had not been a Jefferson Bank situation. So, But the fight for the Congressional District could only have been waged in the place where it was and the result of it had also a ripple effect in terms of nationally. Uh, other states began putting on the same kind of battles for gerrymandered districts. So then, the just keeping on with the um, the protests and just a wearing down of, of uh, well. The time in history had come when black people were just uh, fed up with the promise of equality to come. Mm -hmm. And so as I said, had there not been a Jefferson Bank, there would have been something, something else. else. So the, the time was right for some such action that would gain results. Mm -hmm. But besides that, but that is where it played, it played. The, the, the symbolic catalytic, catalytic role because after that, uh, other things uh, happened in terms of, uh, of uh, the job situation, which was what the Jefferson Bank situation was all about, jobs. And so you found other companies opening up mm -hmm. uh, 
but then all of this was a part of a of a national right. uh, movement, and so we in St. Louis didn't have uh, too many dramatic confrontations. Mm -hmm. What we had was a series of small uh, uh, battles fought and won. And uh, here's a picture of uh, a woman for aid to dependent children in 67. So it was just a continuing small... Yeah, in terms of uh, pressure gaining... Uh, the, big, the big thing about the civil rights struggle is there were so many fronts mm -hmm. to fight the battle on. Uh, you know, there was housing, which was a a story all in its own, of its right. own, open housing. And there's where Mrs. Freeman came in with a, a lawsuit, which she won. We had uh, federal housing, which was segregated. Blacks in one set of buildings, whites in another. And Frankie uh, was the person who handled the suit taking on the federal government in regard to that discrimination in housing. So that was one front yes, and a battle, and it was one. But it wasn't a dramatic yeah. confrontational sort of thing. It was played out in the courtroom. A series of continuing yeah, things on all fronts, whether it be an Ivory Perry or right. a Percy Green. Yeah, now uh, the Percy Green uh, action group, uh, I would think that the uh, the biggest victory that they chalked up was the uh, elimination of the elitist uh, approach to the yearly celebration uh, um, symbolized by the Veiled Prophet Ball, which had been inherited in the city and which everyone black and white had accepted as just the thing that happened until Percy and his group came along and said, why is this so? Uh, why are just these white people, these rich white people, coming in here every year, uh, having their ball, preempting the services of our police, uh, limiting the persons who can participate, and, and it just woke a lot of people up. Percy had more white followers in terms of attacking that veil profit thing than did black, because for the average black, all they saw was the parade. If they wanted to go, they went. If they didn't want to go to the parade, they didn't. But in the black community, those who followed the veil profit parade, they looked upon it as a, an event that they participated in by having their own little celebrations. Mm -hmm. People would buy new clothes for the Bell Prophet Parade, black people, and have a party. The night of the Bell Prophet, there would be dozens of black parties going on all over the city. But this, it just gradually happened. Nobody considered, well, this is just a clear, clear example of 
an elitist, um, symbolic, a self aggrandizement uh, on the part of the wealthy class of whites in St. Louis. Well, tell me about the white followers he had. Well, the white followers, I meant in terms of the idea of cutting the veil profit crowd down to size. I heard this expressed in the legislature. Who the hell they think they are? They would never have gotten out there with Percy. But they were personally very happy that he was making them uncomfortable. And there were a lot of whites who were like that because uh, the press and other elements were chagrined and, and uh, very disturbed about this. But it, it evidently, it must have been uh, a thing that most people approved of because eventually came to pass. Now you have a, a bail profit effort and everyone is invited, invited to come participate. And uh, even now they invite some black people uh, to join the, uh, the what is it, the um, election group. Yeah, I, I read and I, I, I can't quote the, the gentleman that was in the paper, one of the articles that we've been reading. And he said that uh, he had been invited to be part of that group, but he couldn't. The I guess it must deep. have been Ray Howard, Ray Howard who was yes. uh, one of the lawyers mm -hmm. that uh, fought I, I, in the court of the yeah. matter. Because, um, the, because Percy Green and all those guys, they were arrested and put in jail and charged with this, that, and the other, and the lawyers who helped to uh, defend them. Well, Ray Howard was one of them, and he just said that it, it was a scar to be for yeah. him to to, uh, to forgive. Did we? Did I ask you if Percy Green, would you perceive him as a leader? Oh, yeah, Percy Green was a leader in his own right. He was what I would call a grassroots activist who had, he had uh, assumed leadership mm -hmm. and had a following and addressed some pertinent issues. So I, I would go in there. Uh, did you feel that there was coordination between the NAACP core action, um, Black Liberators or any other groups? Did they ever work together? Yeah, I would think that there was there was not a cohesion that uh, that was tied them all together in one particular effort. The cohesion was tacit in the fact that NAACP's aims and goals and techniques were one thing. Core's aims and goals and techniques for others. And then of course the other groups like the Black Liberators and, and Percy's Action, they were another level. So they all worked together in that you did not find the leaders of these groups attacking one another. There might have been some instances when uh, some of the 
what we would call the old God, conservative kind of a leader, meaning the ones who wanted to approach the fight for civil rights in a, in a legal setting, and it's basically NAACP. Some of them were a little vocal about the black Eldridge Cleaver Rap Brown group. Basically, they knew why the Rap Brown and the Eldridge Cleaver group uh, uh, existed. The student, uh, non, what is it, um, Southern Leadership Conference oh. group. Some of those young people who included Jesse Jackson and and uh, Jose um, out of Atlanta, Williams or Jose Williams, and uh, some others who were part of Southern Leadership, they were tackled and criticized, but they were never impugned and they were never disavowed by the other organizational leaderships. Mm -hmm. because they all coalesced on the onslaught, uh, what is it, the, the march on Washington. All of them came together on that particular thing. Not all of them uh, had embraced the, the philosophy of A. Philip Randolph, who was the prime mover. A. Philip Randolph been marching on Washington ever since he got into civil rights. He was constantly planning and promising a march on Washington. Uh, one time it was during the war, and when that news was communicated to Roosevelt, and uh, with the war situation going, and not wanting to have any uh, disturbances that would play into the hands of weakening the, the war effort, uh, Roosevelt agreed to issue the uh, Fair Employment Practices policy. But the time when, when uh, Randolph was most insistent on trying to build a march on Washington was because blacks were not being used in the war job industry. And the issue from uh, Roosevelt to Fair Employment Practices, then that um, was enough of a, of a commitment, uh, and it probably wouldn't have worked anyway at that point in time. I don't think he could have gotten enough allies uh, to put a, a sizable uh, march together, but that was thwarted by the commitment from the president. And because there was another threat, too, about, about the, uh, the armed forces, the true one. Yeah, in 1948. Yeah, when, uh, when um, April Randolph and others were making complaints about the segregated armed forces, and they, too, were talking about a march in Washington. So he used it effectively sometime. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the anticipated was. Were there any problems uh, between the groups? Oh, I would think certainly there were problems in terms of uh, decisions to uh, um, 
to take action. And uh, I can recall at one time, Roy Ennis went off. I think he's a core person from out east somewhere. He went off on a tangent of uh, wanting to set up a black uh, community that was, uh, oh, was this selected somewhere down in one of the Carolinas, I believe, South or North Carolina. And that was not approved by other civil rights groups. And uh, he proceeded with this. It, it failed. But these things were not, uh, there were other instances, I don't recall them all, where the decision of one group for a particular action would 